You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 117. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thanks, as always, for your time and attention today. Thank you especially to those who support the podcast. I truly appreciate your encouragement and everything that you do to keep me moving forward with this show and all that I do on the show. Thank you for your feedback. Thank you for the questions. Thank you for everything. Really, I am truly grateful today for all of you who listen to this. The past month now, I have suffered attacks like I have never experienced in 15 years of ministry. It has reached the point the past week where yesterday, for example, I spent four and a half straight hours on the phone, texting, talking, talking to people in person, answering emails, responding to direct messages on social media, all in regards to matters of, well, disintegration, disintegration of the individual and their struggles and how they are overwhelmed and don't know what to do. They've made poor decisions. They've exercised bad judgment. And as I tell everyone, as a pastor, no one comes to me until after the pin has been pulled. And the expectation is that I'm either going to put the pin back in for them or I'm going to contain the explosion so it's not as devastating. But the fact of the matter is, by the time most people come to me, it's too late for any of that. And therefore, my responsibility within my vocation is usually to guide and lead and walk with people through the catastrophic consequences of their choices and the devastation that overwhelms them. And it is, as you can imagine, a difficult position to be in, to be asked to help, to comfort, to guide, to advise, to walk with people when they are at their worst or descending into their worst moments. In the past, some of those people have chosen to check out. They could not handle the weight that was on them. They saw no hope that there was any way out of their predicament. They were overwhelmed by feelings of guilt and shame and resentment. And they choose to overdose or hang themselves in the garage or drive out in a field and put a gun in their mouth. In those instances, I don't struggle with questions, with survivor's guilt, as we call it, because they made a choice. And their choice was to not fight, not anymore. And there's nothing I know, there's nothing that I could have said or done that would have changed that trajectory. Because like I said, by the time they come to me, they're already on that flight path. And they're looking to me to say something or do something for them that is so profound and monumental that it will alter the trajectory of their life. But how do you alter the trajectory of someone's life when they're already in the pit? They're already crawling on their hands and their knees through the valley of the shadow. 
when they have lost hope and they don't see a future. And especially because they don't want to fight. They don't want to dig their way out of the hole that they dug for themselves. And so, like I said, the last week was punctuated Monday. I was asked to preside and preach at the funeral of a 16-year-old boy who was killed on his motorcycle last week. And those are the types of events that stop me short and compel me to pause and remember, I am not guaranteed anything other than death. Whether it's today or tomorrow or decades from now, we live in an old and dying world and we ourselves get older and we die. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how. And when a 16-year-old boy dies violently, as this young boy did, at least for myself, it makes me appreciate my children more, my wife more, everything that I have is brought into that relation to that person, that corpse in the casket. And it's all I can do then is to give thanks for God for the day that he has created, give thanks that I am allowed to be a part of it and that he provides for me. He sets my table with daily bread. He provides me with wife and children, house and home, with my land, my animals, and all that I have. It's all gift. But how easily do we then take those gifts for granted? How often do we get so bogged down in just raw, primal materialism and we look at what we have been given and pat ourselves on the back for what we have accomplished, what we have done. And I'm not saying that we should not be proud of our accomplishments. I think that that's actually uh, an aspect of many people's lives that I encounter that is lacking. They're not proud of anything. They don't see value or meaning in anything they do, not ultimately. In the short term, temporarily, yes. But ask them, what is the ultimate purpose? What is your mission? What is the goal now that you've achieved this for yourself? And often it is just to acquire more material things because we live in a materialistic culture. But what about values? One of the things that I read in a, a comment was that I don't offer solutions, or I don't offer enough solutions when I talk about especially difficult things like the disintegration and implosion of our society and Western civilization at present. And yet, I repeatedly say you need to build new communities, build new cultures. You need to become more self-sufficient. Our 80-20 rule is what we go by, 80% self-sufficient, 20% dependent upon consumer market anything that is out there that we essentially are compelled to use just because we live in the society we live in, such as the bank and the supermarket and the gas station and so on. But really at root for me, it is you need to build your own communities. You need to build your own culture, whether that is in the home, whether that is in your neighborhood, in your community, in your city, your state, even at a national level, perhaps even at an international level. 
And it doesn't take much effort. It takes sacrifice. It takes energy. But it doesn't take much effort. Start a podcast. Plant a garden. Invite other people to join you in planting that garden. Look around your home, your community, and ask what is lacking, not just materially, but spiritually. What is lacking? What is lacking in the relationships that you have with people in your home, in your neighborhood, at church, at the gym? What is lacking? And how can you enter that space and fill it with your words and your actions and your good intentions? And so, in particular, this past week, as I have struggled to find sleep, as I have quite often simply stood in the shower and prayed that God would protect me and cover me, give me wisdom and strength so that I can weather this storm. I think about not just the doing of building a home, building a community, building a whole culture in the gym or at work or in the church. But what undergirds that? What is it that motivates and compels people like myself and you to do that when so many choose not to? And of course, at some point, in between meditating on God's Word, reading the Psalms and praying, I go back to Beowulf. I go back to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I go back to the old ways, and today, this morning especially, I go back to honor and loyalty and the matter of worth, this old Anglo-Saxon word, worth, because so many people that I meet, all of the people that I interact with, especially the past month, whether it's their individual lives, their relationships, what's happening at work or their business, what's happening at the gym, I see people and I hear people who lack self-worth. And also then, they don't find value in others. They treat others as if they have a diminished value or no value to them whatsoever because they offer nothing positive or quote-unquote good to them. And yet, like I said, I reflect on this in relation to standing next to the casket of a 16-year-old boy. And over 200 people are staring at me, waiting for me to tell them something, waiting to hear me fill the stillness that is marked by the dead. They want a word. They want me to preach a life-giving word into the stillness of that death. And so for myself, as a pastor, as a man, as a fighter, honor and loyalty and worth are like these three tent pegs, this tripod that holds up and supports who I am as a man, as a professional. And every culture on earth has some set of values that reflect this old Anglo-Saxon code of honor, loyalty, and worth. Whether it's the chivalric code of the medieval knights, whether it's Bushido in, in Japan amongst the samurai, every culture cultivates, or it used to actually, and nurtures 
these attributes of honor, loyalty, and worth. But before the knights, before the samurai, before there was an organized warrior class, these attributes, these ethics, these principles were still a part of society at the primal tribal level, which persuades me to believe, it convinces me to believe that these are objective truths because they were embraced by different cultures in different places at different times, and yet it's always there. And it's even in the present tense, you just got to go looking for it a little bit more earnestly than you used to. But honor and loyalty had been around for centuries before the Norman knights came around, before the samurai came around, because it was brought over this honor, this loyalty, these attributes, these ethics, this, this ethos, there we go, was brought over by Germanic settlers from the Anglo-Saxon tribes. And what it looked like is reflected in the epic poem of Beowulf. But does Beowulf, does honor and loyalty and worth have a place in the modern world? I think it does, but I think it must come by way of then the pre-modern tradition that stretches back thousands of years into the murky past. And we need to then again recover those poems, those stories, those narratives. It's the whole reason this podcast exists. And promote them, meditate and digest them, manifest them in our lives, be walking, living, breathing examples of these ancient pre-modern principles of honor and loyalty and worth. As a man, as a father, as a pastor, as a fighter, as a husband, that's where these are manifested. Because these are also, well, they don't exist in isolation from other people. That's the key point, right? That in tribalism, it's about the tribe and the future of the tribe. It's not about the individual standing apart from the tribe, but rather everyone contributing to the health and the well-being and the longevity of the whole tribe. And therefore, everyone was expected to behave with honor and loyalty and worth. But it's a relational set of terms then. Honoring who? Loyal to whom? Worthy of whom? Beowulf does not exist as a hero for himself, but rather for others. That's the point, is that he's brought in with his band of mighty warriors to deal with a problem that the people in their valley cannot deal with because they've lost their belly for fighting. Beowulf exists to serve others, to fight monsters on behalf of others, to defend and protect others. That's what the word hero means in Greek. So in Beowulf, in the Battle of Malden, in The Wanderer, I've read two of those for sure, that code is there, that ethic, that ethos is there. And there is ample evidence then throughout ancient literature that not only describes honor and loyalty and worth, but does so narratively so that it's easy for your mind to gain traction and hold on to it and remember it. So that then rather than give someone a philosophical lecture about the principles 
these abstract general ideas of honor and loyalty and worth, you can simply relate it in the form of a story. You can tell the story of Beowulf. You can tell the story of the Wanderer. You can tell the story of the Battle of Malden. You can see this in things like the Lord of the Rings so that you can recite excerpts and quote from the Lord of the Rings and say, it's here too. Tolkien got it. And so if you're looking for solutions, answers to the question, it's there. It's in the literature. It's a part of the historical record. You just have to go get it. So Tacitus, for example, he wrote about these central tenets of the Germanic warriors, this code that to protect, to defend, to devote one's own feats, even to his glorification, is all about allegiance. Because the chief of the tribe, for example, fights for victory, but those within the tribe fight for the chief. They fight for each other. They fight for the man to the left and their right, but they also fight for the women and children that are behind them. Because if the warriors on the front line fall, well, where is the enemy going to go next? Into your villages, into your homes. So it's not just about me. It's never just about me. It's about holding the line for those who are next to me and those who are behind me. And so, as Tacitus records about the Germanic people, they embraced this code, this ethos of extreme courage in battle, concern for the reputation of not only oneself, but one's chief, concern for honor and loyalty, and then ultimately for the acquisition of glory. And then the pivotal thing then that underlies even these facets of this code, of this ethos, is the relationship between the fighter and his chief, or his thane, as it used to be called. So that in the English poem, The Wanderer, as, that I referred to a little bit ago, it describes in The Wanderer the importance of this relationship in the lamentations of a warrior who has lost his chief, his thane. And this is what it sounds like. Indeed, this he knows who must long be deprived of the counsels of his beloved Lord, when sorrow and sleep together often bind the wretched solitary one? It seems to him, in his mind, that he embraces and kisses his Lord and lays his hands and head on his knee, as he had previously. From time to time, in days gone by, gained benefit from the throne. The wanderer, for example, then, it shines a light on the relationship of the chief to his loyal thanes, which I got backwards a little bit ago. I apologize for that. It's not a master-servant relationship. It's not, I own you and you do what I tell you to do or else. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's a give-and-take relationship. It's reciprocal. It's mutually beneficial. Yes, you are my chief, my lord. Yes, you are over me, so to speak. You have earned that. And yes, I am loyal to you because I am under you, so to speak. But you do not lord it over me that you are my chief, and I will not then hold resentment against you 
and rebel against you. But rather, we both recognize that we need the other more than anything else. And that communal obligation to support and take care of each other, the Lord retain a relationship as it was called, that's essential to tribal life. It's essential to the warrior culture in every culture throughout time. And so when you lack a chief, you lack a place and you lack a vocation within the tribe. You lack a friend, you lack a kinsman, you lack help in need. In fact, you even lack someone to avenge your death. And so the loyalty between the Lord and the Thane, between the chief and his fighters, is one of friendship that then gives birth to loyalty. The source of virtue in a warrior class, in a warrior society, is friendship between kinsmen that is established by observing that our relationship is reciprocal, it's give and take, and that we both benefit from our relationship to the other man or the other woman. And therefore, we are obligated to the other person to take care of them, to watch out for them, even avenge their death if need be. Imagine if we lived that way as husband and wife, as father and child, as pastor and congregation, as coach and student. Imagine if we treated each other that way when we encountered people in public. How different would our society look today? So courage, reputation, glory, all done in the service of our chieftain, our lord, our kinsman, and therefore his service to me as his thane. This is what is summarized in the word honor, especially personal honor. And this is how you are judged by your peers and by society at large in tribal society. That man is a man of honor. That woman is a woman of honor. Well, how do you know that? Because they exemplify courage and a good reputation and glory in service to the chief, first and foremost, to the chief's wife and children, but also to all the other families within the tribe and their own family. They would rather die than fail in their relationship to their kinsmen. They would rather be executed, actually, they would rather sacrifice themselves than bring dishonor upon their home by not behaving with courage, by not guarding their reputation and the reputation of their family and their tribe and their kinsmen, and not seeking glory. It's the worst fate possible. And this is the weird thing then. Talking about honor, there's no word for honor in Anglo-Saxon vocabulary. There isn't a word for it, which is strange considering that it undergirds their whole culture. But I think a part of that then is you don't define it because you see it every day. You don't have to explain to the children, this is the definition of honor. Instead, you simply point at an honorable man and an honorable woman, hopefully your mother and father, but also the chieftain, also the chieftain's wife, also the chieftain's children, and all your neighbors. And you go, you see Billy over there? There you go. Act like him. Look at our chief. He's a man of honor. 
Just act like him and you'll be all right. You see how your father carries himself. You see how your mother carries herself. You don't need to be taught and have honor defined for you. You simply grow up with it. It's like the air you breathe. So it's actually the opposite that needs definition. What do you call that? That's dishonor. Oh, okay. That's, I thought it was strange. Yeah, because that person over there, those people over there are acting in a way that is contrary to the way everyone acts. They're acting dishonorable. They're cowards. They're inglorious, which, in my opinion, essentially defines American society, U.S. society today, that there is an absolute lack of courage, but an abundance of cowardice. No one cares about their reputation or the reputation of their neighbor anymore. No one cares about the glory of the tribe, the platoon, the squad, the team. It's all about me and what's in it for me and what I can get out of this relationship and what I can get out of this transaction versus if I seek your well-being, that will then result in my own well-being. But everyday life in Anglo-Saxon tribal culture, that's just the way it was. They didn't have podcasts. They didn't have to talk about this stuff in this way to define it, to, to dig into the archive, so to speak, and, and suss out where's honor, where's loyalty, where's worth. Now the term loyalty, on the other hand, which doesn't fully define the Anglo-Saxon concept of honor, the ethic of honor, it's not the antithesis of shame, but there's loyalty and then there is behaving in a way that brings shame upon yourself, your family, and your tribe. But that's not quite the whole of it, the sum of it. It doesn't really capture what the opposite of loyalty or honor is. So I guess that's the question. What is the Anglo-Saxon definition of honor. Because if we can look at it, and we can see it, and we can go point at it and say, okay, that's honor. Okay, great. But what if we can't see it? What if we can't look at it? What if we can't point at it? Then where do we go? Especially nowadays. Well, we have to go to the question of worth. What is worth well, it actually encompasses honor and gift-giving, which, again, gift-giving, what is that? It is selflessness. It is giving something of yourself to someone else for free, unconditionally, without limit or measure. So you have honor, which encompasses a whole set of values that then point to a person's worth, which in turn determines their value to the tribe, to the chief, to society as a whole. And so for the Anglo-Saxons, a man's value to the tribe was dependent on his ability to take his place in the social order. What is your vocation? How do you support the well-being and the health and the future of this tribe? And that starts then with a pledge, a promise, an oath that is unconditional, unshakable, and completely and ultimately and totally binding, which is loyalty to your chieftain, to your kinsman lord. And then in return, 
your Lord makes a pledge to you to prove to you every day his value as a leader by rewarding his loyal warriors with gifts and status. He's going to promote them. He's going to give them tokens that show others this man is a brave and loyal warrior. Maybe it's a sword or a shield or a spear. Maybe it's a cloak or some armor. Maybe it's extra food or extra drink. Maybe it's a place at the table closer to the chieftain. Maybe even sitting at the table of honor with the chieftain. But again, it's reciprocal. You support me, you fight for me, you protect and defend me, and I'll do the same for you. This back and forth, this transaction, this is what imbues you, puts on you the title of worth, which is an old English word, which then constitutes honor, defines honor. So how do we define honor? It's worth. Well, how do we define worth? Well, we define it by our loyalty to our chieftain and our chieftain's loyalty to us. Whether it be our boss, whether it be our coach, whether it be our squad leader, whoever it might be who is the chief in that moment, are we loyal to him or her and are they loyal to us? Because if either side doesn't reciprocate, then the entire relationship is going to be out of whack and improperly balanced, and it's not going to lead to a loyal, honorable, worthwhile relationship. And think about that term, worthwhile. What does it mean that our relationship is worthwhile or this is worthwhile? It means it has worth, it has value. Well, how do we determine the value then, the worth of this while we do it? our loyalty to it. But specifically, in a pre-modern sense, it's not an it, it's a person, it's a man or a woman. Nowadays, we dedicate ourselves, we show ourselves loyal to ideas, to things, to material possessions. And every once in a while, we show our worth in our loyalty to each other. But as I said, the past month, man, it seems that some days I'm so overwhelmed by the amount of noise coming at me from the outside. There's so many relationships that are imploding and disintegrating. So many broken relationships in marriage right now. And it's always because there's this improper balance within the relationship, that one person in the relationship is doing everything they can to preserve it, and the other person is saying, I don't think there's anything worth saving. Because relationships don't fall apart in a day. It takes months and years and sometimes decades. It's like the foundation of the house rots underneath your feet, but you don't see it because it's covered up by the baseboards, by the linoleum and the tile. It's rotting from the foundation up. So when the floor caves in, you're caught completely by surprise. Or you choose to ignore the signs that the foundation is rotting. And you think to yourself, you convince yourself, you reason it away and say, ah, it'll be fine. It's not that big of a deal. It's not as bad as he or she says. And then 
the foundation crumbles. Loyalty is not just sleeping in the same bed with somebody every night. It's not just showing up for birthday parties. It's not going out for dinner when she gets a promotion. It's not the perfunctory, I love you as you leave the house. It's loyalty. It's dedication and devotion. It's respect and honor shown to the other person because they are worth that. They are worthy of that. And the proof is they reciprocate. But if they don't reciprocate, if they are not worthy of that, if they do not deserve your loyalty, if they are unworthy to be honored, what do you do then? If they don't care about the health and the well-being of the relationship, the home, the neighborhood, the gym, the office, whatever it might be, then what do you do? Well, in the old days, those people were driven out of the tribe. They were sacrificed because they were a threat to everyone in the tribe. Everyone in the tribe had a role. Everyone had their specific vocation. And everyone contributed to the overall well-being of everyone else in the tribe. It wasn't communism that we all shared everything in common. We all pooled our resources in, in the community chest. But rather, each person had a specific vocation and therefore was valuable to the tribe. You're a weaver. The other per- that guy over there, he's a fisher. She goes out and picks fruit every morning. Those guys over there go hunting in the woods every morning. They take care of the fire. They take care of the wash. They thatch the roofs of the huts. They tend to the chief. Everybody had a role. Everybody was important. Everybody was unique within the group. But it was the group that ultimately mattered, the tribe. And if you checked out from that, if you decided to behave disloyally and to dishonor your chieftain, your kinsmen, your tribe and your family, you were driven out. And maybe we need to focus on doing that more often, not canceling people because they say or do something that we disagree with, but rather, have you brought dishonor on this business, this office, our gym? It's one of the things that concerns me most as a coach for my coach is that I not bring dishonor. I not represent his gym poorly because if I do that, students are going to cancel their membership which directly affects then my coach. Not just the gym though. He has a mortgage. He has a wife and children. He has car payments. He needs food on his table. And so by me behaving dishonorably and disloyalty to my coach who gave me that position to teach within his gym and showed me his respect, he honored me and showed that he's loyal to me as well by giving me that gift, promoting me to that status of coach as well as teammate. The best thing that I could possibly do for him then is to reciprocate that in the way that I carry myself as a coach and a student within the gym. Does that mean I never screw up? I never say or do the wrong thing? Of course not. But it means that it's front and center in my mind when I'm instructing, when I'm teaching, when I'm talking with students after class is to be a good representative of my coach's gym and therefore of my coach and therefore of his family. 
so that I don't bring dishonor upon him, that I do not act disloyally, and that I show him I'm worthy of the gifts and the status that he imbues towards me, on me. And in this way, then, I show my worth to him and he shows his worth to me. And this is what constitutes honor. It doesn't mean that we always behave honorably. It doesn't mean that we never do anything to dishonor ourselves, our family, the gym. But when we do that, we check ourselves. We apologize. We say with earnestness, I'll do better next time. That won't happen again. I'll do my best to make sure that that never happens again. And so we separate ourselves from quote-unquote ordinary people based on our sense of honor. And we define ourselves as, what's the word in Old English, the Anglo-Saxon? Gewurd, meaning gewurth, there it is. Gewurth, meaning to be made worthy. You make yourself worthy and you are made worthy of your position in the tribe, in the home, in the church, in the gym. But you do it out of a sense of loyalty to others, not so that you as an individual can get something out of it for yourself and damned be anybody else who gets in your way or asks you to share or reciprocate. And so this whole matter of gift giving, whether it's material gifts or imbuing someone with the title of warrior, leader, coach, whatever it might be, that the distribution of the gifts in a public setting so that everyone in the tribe can see that you as the chieftain, as the kinsman of this warrior, is honoring this man, it's important because it's a physical enactment. It's a manifestation of the bond between chieftain and warrior, the obligation between the Lord and his thanes. There's an 11th century book of Old English Proverbs. It's entitled The Durham Proverbs. And it gives us a, a kind of insight into this whole gift-giving economy and how it worked. For example, they're Proverbs, right? Each gift looks back over its shoulder. I like that one. That's good. Each gift looks back over its shoulder. And I give so that you give. Anglo-Saxons didn't give gifts without expecting a return on their gift giving. And usually it came with an oath of allegiance and, in this case, military service. And so each gift looks back over its shoulder. Who is the giver? Are they giving this to me and then sending me out into the wilderness by myself to try and make the best of it on my own, which in tribal society is anathema? Or are they walking with me? And so there's no one behind me because they're next to me. I give so that you give. So the gift was not only a physical enactment of the bond of obligation between the Lord and his thanes, the chief and his warriors, it's symbolic. The act of giving in itself is a representation, a symbol. And you can actually see this then in the burial customs of the Anglo-Saxons. Material objects were put in the graves. We've all seen these before. Why? Because it's a symbol of the status of the person who's been buried. I'm going to bury you with your horses, with your chariot, with your weapons, even with your family. So that when someone finds this grave in the future, they dig it up 
and they wonder, who was this pile of bones? <coughs> Excuse me. What is buried with this person will let you know anything that you need to know. If you find a boat <laughs> buried under the ground with a dude in the middle of the boat, that was an important man. Either a great warrior who was then greatly honored or a great chief. And so for the warrior classes in these cultures, any valuable item, item given to them by their chief is worth carrying into the grave, especially weapons. To give someone a sword, to give someone a spear or a shield, to give someone armor, it's the greatest honor in a warrior culture that you can give to someone because they hold extreme significance, not just obviously for everyday use in, in the fight, but symbolically again as well. In fact, the, the, the Saxon tribal name is derived from the word uh, sax, which is a short dagger that every Saxon person carried with them. Saxon from the word sax, meaning dagger. One could be honored by a weapon of great worth by possessing it or being marked by it. Think about that. And so we got to go to Beowulf. It's inevitable. Beowulf, this Frankish warrior, he wore an a, a, a armor, a breast armor. I guess is the easiest way to translate that. It's adorned in breast armor. So the use of the word worth here implies that being killed by Beowulf's weapon, in this case, this Frankish warrior killed by Beowulf, I'm sorry, this Frankish warrior that Beowulf killed, he was worthy of this because Beowulf's weapon bestowed honor upon him because it pierced his breast armor. And so Beowulf's sword, which of course had a name, Runting, it's a weapon of great worth given to him by the chief, by the Lord he serves, Hrothgar, and thus it holds great value and honor all by itself even apart from Beowulf. It's not Beowulf that imbues this sword with honor, but rather the sword itself and who gave the sword to Beowulf imbues it with honor. Now how he uses that sword then simply adds to its glory, its fame, its renown, its reputation. That's a very short, a very quick and dirty description of not only honor, but loyalty and worth as it was defined and embodied by the Anglo-Saxons and how it came out in stories like Beowulf and the Wanderer and the Durham Proverbs. But we also, probably not in this episode, because I'm going to keep this short today, and I'll come back and do another episode on this, but one of the things about Beowulf that uh, Tolkien in his lectures on Beowulf points out is how the Christian ethos, and especially when Christianity had infiltrated the Germanic peoples, and then Britain, how the Christian ethic changed the Anglo-Saxon ethic, the code of honor and loyalty and worth. And actually, something that's always fascinated me then about Tolkien, not just with his Beowulf lectures, but in the Lord of the Rings, is that he believed that there could actually be a happy medium established between the old Anglo-Saxon ethic, the warrior code, and the Christian ethic. He did not think it was binary, it was an either-or. 
And that's really what he does in The Lord of the Rings is he forms a narrative which brings the two sides together narratively in such a way that Christians can read The Lord of the Rings and say, oh, there's a whole bunch of Christian symbolism and subtext in this novel, novels. But someone who's not a Christian, who doesn't understand or have any connection with the Christian ethos, can also read it and say, oh, I see the Anglo-Saxon warrior code. I see this ethos of honor and loyalty and worth on every page of the Lord of the Rings. So which one is it? Well, Tolkien, according to his own notes, said it was both. And that that's what he was doing in the trilogy, was building a bridge between the two and bringing them together and showing that, no, these can coexist. In fact, they complement each other. And so I think I'll wrap it up for today at 45 minutes, keep it short today, with that because, like I said, I think it's going to be at least another hour talking about the heroic ethos, the Anglo-Saxon ethos, and the Christian ethos. And diving specifically into Tolkien, specifically into Tolkien and his meditation and his lectures on Beowulf, and then about the Lord of the Rings. Because again, I think the best way and the easiest way, at least for myself and, and maybe for you too, to grasp these attributes, this, this ethos of, of honor and loyalty and worth, is best defined within the parameters of narrative. <clears throat> Not just Beowulf and the Wanderer and the Durham Proverbs, but in the Lord of the Rings themselves. And since Jackson did such an amazing job bringing the books to life on the screen, I think you can actually quite easily then watch the movies themselves and see loyalty and honor and worth coming off the screen at you all over the place. Sam and Frodo, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, like it's everywhere. Gandalf, all of the minor characters, it's these, 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 these attributes, this, this ethos, it's everywhere on the screen. But the opposite of there is with Saruman, with the Witch King, it's all over the place on the other side too. And so you have these, so, you know, so to speak, living, breathing examples in narrative form of both honor and dishonor, loyalty and disloyalty, worth and valuelessness. And so we'll get into that in the next episode. But I'm just going to be honest. I hope that this was cogent and, and made sense and that I worked from point A to point B in a linear analytical way and I wasn't all over the place today. Like I said, I haven't been sleeping very well the past week or so. And I feel a great weight on myself every day. And part of being a husband and a father is not walking into my home and unloading this weight on my wife and my children. Now, my wife walks with me because she's an honorable woman and she's loyal to her husband. And she's a woman of great faith and strength. And it humbles me <laughs> that she shares a bed with me and calls herself my wife. But even then, I try to make sure that we talk about the principles. We talk about the ethic. We talk about the spirit and what he's doing without getting into the nitty-gritty details and weighing her down in such a way that she now has to carry the burden on her shoulders when she has enough to carry on her own without me adding to that weight. And that's how I honor her. That's how I remain loyal to her and show her that she is worthy 
of my respect, of my honor, of my gifts to her. And think about how different our society would be today if we, in our relationships with the other person, gave gifts back and forth. If we looked over our shoulder while we walked with the gift and asked, where's the gift giver? Oh, there she is. She's right beside me. He's not standing there watching me go off into the unknown by myself. He's right there with me, walking with me every step of the way, honoring not only the gift that he's given me, but honoring me by walking with me with the gift. And so I'm going to honor him. I'm going to honor her by walking with her, showing her that she is worthy of loyalty and honor. I'm going to reciprocate. I'm going to give a gift back. And that we're going to define our relationship. We're going to define our marriage. We're going to define our friendship by the act of giving gifts, not just material gifts, but the gifts of honor and loyalty and worthiness. The the gifts of righteousness and wisdom and temperance and prudence and charity and kindness and even more importantly nowadays, forgiveness. Forgive each other. We're not promised tomorrow. Today, everything is great. The sun is up. It's 79 degrees. Someone's giving us a table and chair set. Our fruit and our vegetables and our garden are exploding. And then tomorrow I have to stand at the casket and I have to preach the resurrection to eternal life over the body of a 16-year-old boy who was killed on his motorcycle. We're not promised tomorrow. We're not entitled to our next breath. It's all gift. It's all given to us. And we can either honor that gift or we can dishonor it. But time is short. Time is short. And the times are dark. And yet we can be light in the darkness. We can lighten other people's load. We can help them carry the weight simply by showing up and walking with them and showing ourselves to be honorable and loyal and worth their time and attention and energy by giving it to them. So gift the people around you today. Hold them tight. Tell them you love them and mean it. Be sincere. Be earnest. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Don't be afraid to ask for forgiveness. But above all, meditate on this. What does it mean to be a person, a man or a woman of honor and loyalty and worth? If you need help, go read Beowulf. Go read The Wanderer. Go read the Durham Proverbs. I know I'm going to go read the Durham Proverbs right now. And I'll come back next week and we'll talk about Beowulf and Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and the heroic ethos and what happens when the Anglo-Saxons ran into the Christians and how Tolkien tried to build a bridge between the two and what the Lord of the Rings can teach us today about these ancient ethics, attributes, this code of loyalty, honor, and worth. All right, Space Monkeys, thank you again for all that you do to help me and support me. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you real soon. Peace.